self-control. That is today's topic. And I have no idea why they gave that topic to me. But here we are. Uh, um, <clears throat> and so let's, uh, let's, let's begin. Um, there's a novel out there. Oh, who, who, who here has heard of C.S. Lewis? So, so he wrote a novel called, and if, if you haven't, if you have not read this novel, it's, it's called The Screwtape Letters. And so it's, it's one of his more popular works, um, even though, but, but, but not more famous works. Does that make any sense? Right, a lot of people have read it, but uh, general public hasn't heard it. But the story basically, um, it addresses the issue of sin and temptation, right? Of a British man called uh, the patient, right? From the perspective of these two demons, Screwtape and Wormwood. Um, the other two characters mentioned in this novel uh, consistently are the enemy, which happens to be God, right? Which makes sense, considering it's coming from the perspective of two demons. And the other is um, our father below, which is Satan, obviously. Um, the screw tape is this high-ranking demon, um, an expert in all things sin and temptation. And Wormwood is his nephew. And Wormwood is a novice. Um, and screw tape gets very flustered uh, with, with, with Wormwood because Wormwood is, 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 is a clunky tempter. He's not the most savvy tempter. He, he, he's a rookie, basically. And so, uh, Screwtape writes 31 letters, and that's what comprises the novel, these 31 chapters, writes these 31 letters to his nephew, um, trying to make him a better tempter, right? And in one of the letters, Wormwood is excited about trying to tempt the patient to commit murder instead of using smaller, quote-unquote, respectable sins. And this is what Screwtape says. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempers, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, or in this case, the man from God. It does not matter how small the sins are provided, excuse me, how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turning, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Isn't that the truth? The subtlety of sins we saw tolerate, the subtlety of the little things that we face, that we practice, that we go through on a day-to-day -day basis, those are equally damaging from a spiritual perspective, from a soul perspective, from a mind perspective as any quote-unquote great sin we could ever experience or imagine. And so with that, um, today I want to discuss that because one of the things that we very often um, accept in our lives and we're okay with it is self-control in different areas. And so before we begin, I want us to open up to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to consider verses 3 through 8. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8.
I try to get out of this this Wednesday. Um, the pastor Mark was had wasn't hearing it. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, he he explained ungodliness, and I'm glad he's conquered that. Um, and we had a uh, Pastor David last week conquer his pride. Um, that will not be the case today. Uh, I have not conquered the subject matter, and so. Um, so uh, we're, we're going to deal with this uh, straightforward, or we're going to deal with this with grace. Amen? Amen? 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us excuse me, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge, <clears throat> excuse me, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how should we assess the sin of the lack of self-control? Because that's what our topic is today. Uh, title slide, please, the next one. Yep. The lack of self-control in his angry friends. Um, that's the title for today. The lack of self-control and his angry friends. How should we assess this? Well, it comes to mind what Jesus told the disciples about prayer. Now, could you imagine if next Sunday, Pastor Russell was to get up to the pulpit and say, and admonish the congregation for not praying at least one hour a day. Could you imagine that? All the emails he would get. Now imagine if Jesus would have said the same thing to the disciples. Oh wait, he did. Now, Jesus would be fired from a lot of churches for a lot of the stuff he said. <laughs> As a matter of fact, right? He'd be too liberal because he sat and he ate with sinners, right? He ate with uh, uh, tax collectors. He'd be too, way too liberal. But no, he'd, he'd be too legalistic because he gave commandments and rules that should be followed for those who identified as followers of his. And, just for kicks, Jesus lost more members and more followers in one week, a week before he died, than any pastor or church I know. So, what does that mean? What's the point? Point is honesty. Point we should get from Jesus telling the disciples about prayer is that we could benefit from prayer more. Amen? That's, that's, that's an honest take on that particular passage. And that's how we will look at today's topic, honestly. What does that mean? Well, it's easy to respond unevenly to the realization of our own sin. We can be incredibly harsh on ourselves sometimes. Right? Other times we can be overly gracious and almost dismissive and rationalize right, the sin that kind of besieges us every single day. But God wants us to be honest. So I have four disclaimers for today before we begin. All right, uh, Pastor David last week said he asked for his topic. As I told you before, I did not ask for this topic. 
And as a matter of fact, once I was given this topic, I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, but honestly, this has convicted me in a way that some of you probably, <laughs> some of you may understand and others not. I've struggled with this and my wife is witness. Al is witness, I've been complaining to him for weeks. Um, and so this has convicted me in a great way. It's convicted me deeply and it shined a light on so many areas of my own life that are lacking. So here are these disclaimers. Number one, the Bible requires us to say what it says even when we have not mastered the topic. Amen? Second one, the Bible requires us to say what it says especially when we have not mastered the topic. Third, there are things we will speak of today that will make you look at me and say, I cannot believe this guy is speaking on the topic. And guess what? I agree with you. But James 5, 16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so, disclaimer number four, we will have an open and honest conversation tonight that at the end of the evening, pray for each other so that we may be healed of our most tolerated, protected, and even comforting sins. Amen? So let's get into some definitions. What is self-control? Self-control is the exercise of inner strength under the exercise of sound judgment that enables us to think, say, and do things that are pleasing to God. That is uh, by Jerry Bridges in his book, The Practice of Godliness. In the exercise of inner strength under the exercise of sound judgment that enables us to think, say, and do things that are pleasing to God. What does that mean? It means that self-control is a conscious exercise. It means it is an intentional exercise. It means that self-control, the exercise of it, acknowledges God's will in every human interaction, every human transaction, every. And lastly, it submits to God's will in those transactions. Dr. Philip Towner wrote that self-control involves both control over one's behavior and the impulses and the emotions beneath it. Now, the self, lack of self-control masquerades itself in our culture as control over what the self wants to do. Right? That's, that's what it, you know, I control. I decide. I do what I want. I do as I please. I'm an individual. You know, a decade ago, it's already been a decade, the term came out, YOLO, if you've ever heard of that. You only live once and other such phrases, right? So the lack of, of self-control masquerades in culture as absolute control. I control my life, I control it my way, I control it on my time, I control who I see, when I see, I control what happens when we're all together. I, 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 self, self, self. And that is the absolute opposite. Tim, Tim McGraw, in one of his songs, he says it very clearly. He says, I like it. I love it, and I want more of it. Lack of self-control, with no shame whatsoever, with no, with no concern for morality, with no concern for what that means. See, the love of self is the opposite of self-control. Instead, it embraces the full license to do what pleases us, with no account to God or respect for his design. 
And the lack of control, lack of self-control affects everyone. Next slide, please. Paul warns everyone about it. So let's turn over to Titus chapter 2. But I want to point out just a couple of chapters, just a couple of verses, excuse me. And so Paul reminds us and tells us that this self-control issue isn't just a child issue. I'm sorry the font is small. That was my fault. Um, right? It's not a child issue. It's not a youth issue. It's not a male or female issue. It's a universal human issue. I'll explain. If we go, we jump back to Titus 1.8, right? Paul, I'm not going to read it because the ones in the back can't see it. Um, right? Paul counsels the elders of that church to be self-controlled. And then we see, right, in Titus chapter 2, verse 2, we find that he advises the older men, right, the older men to be self-controlled. And later in verses 3 and 4, right, sorry, it says these older women teach the younger women to be self-controlled in verse 5. So this is older men, older women, younger women, right? Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger man to be self-controlled. So this isn't something, well, you know what, I've become more self-controlled with experience or with age. Uh-uh. This is an issue that affects us all in so many ways. But he brings us, he brings us the key, right? And then in verse 12, if we, if we, if we head down to that, it says, training us, all of us, right, to live self-controlled. Verse 12, everybody. Why does he mention this so many different times to so many different groups? He repeats this five times in this chapter. He repeats this term seven times in this letter because it is important for us to understand that at every aspect, at every time, at every age, at every stage of development, we need to look out for that lack of self-control sin that pops his head almost every day. But he gives us the key in Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Praise God. For the grace of God has appeared. That is the solution. That is the answer. I could do this all day. I could, I could work on, on, on myself. I could do self-help all day long. The self-help industry is a multi-million dollar industry. It's a $200 million industry in the United States. And yet, why do people keep going back? I know someone who has been to over 80 different Tony Robbins presentations. You would think after 80 different Tony Robbins presentations, you'd get it by now. You can recite the material by memory. This person listens to it to go to sleep. You should know what Tony Robbins has to say, but yet after 80 presentations, after understanding, listening, night after night after night, you still go back. Why? Because it is not the grace of Tony Robbins. It is not the teaching of a man. It is the grace of God that gives us the power to be able to tackle this pesky, but also powerful sin. Titus tells us, Paul tells us that it brings salvation. 
that it trains us to live self-controlled lives. It tells us that we are redeemed from lawlessness and that's why we can do it. it tells us we can, we can be victorious because we are purified. And by that grace we are made zealous for good works. Titus chapter 2, when you have time this week. And so, let's talk about areas where we lose control. And so there are four. We typically lose control physically. We typically see a loss of the exercise of self-control financially. We lose control of our thoughts. Lose control of the things that are in our mind. And lastly, emotionally. We struggle very often with self-control. Let's speak physically. Next slide. Physical loss of control. So here's what it involves. First and foremost, the easy one. The one you're going to say, I, you skip that section. What we consume. What we consume. Right? The food and drink that we consume. What we consume with our eyes and ears. Right? Now, it's in, our, it's in our culture. We are Baptists here. And those who, and part of the Baptists that are here are Southerners. That is a bad combination when it comes to self-control and food. I am Puerto Rican. And so there is nothing that occurs in the social life of a Puerto Rican that does not involve food. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what happened one time. We got invited to a birthday party, a kid's birthday party. My wife was laughing. And I was very aggravated when we got to the party. The party was from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. I did not know that if you conduct the party from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m., we looked it up after. <laughs> There's no social obligation to provide lunch. So guess what? They didn't provide lunch. And we intentionally did not eat lunch because we were going to a birthday party. <laughs> now, I don't know if there are any Latinos in the house, but, but have you ever heard of a birthday party with no food? Beside myself. <laughs> we, right, we, talked about, we, we, was, we were talking about it for a couple days. She called her mother. Could you believe this? <laughs> but, as I just did, we make light of it and sometimes we leave it there. As I have many times. And yet that is something that does not, in the least, please God. When I got this assignment four weeks, uh, several weeks ago, I, I didn't open it, I was doing other things. I opened the book finally four weeks ago and I read this chapter and I looked at myself in the mirror and said, I'm, how am I gonna stand before the congregation of McGregor Baptist Church and speak on self-control on what I consume in regards to food and drink? Honestly, that's how I'm gonna do it. And the Lord is dealing with me in those areas since then. And I praise God for that as stressful as these four weeks have been. But it is something that God is calling us to do. God has, has, it is God's intention that on July 26th at 7.13 p.m. in the Fellowship Hall of McGregor Baptist Church, we are discussing self-control of what we consume. And so as it rains the word of God in here and as if we are watered, those of us who need that watering, let us grab onto it and let us say amen. amen. 
Then there's what we see. What we hear. Now, I'm not opposed to secular music. There's just some stuff that doesn't edify me. I'm not opposed to going to the movies and seeing something or popping on a Netflix show. There's some stuff that I shouldn't be watching on those shows. I have a phone, we have, comp we have a computer, we have internet. A lot of stuff in there. But there's some stuff, Al, that we shouldn't be entertaining. We shouldn't be feeding our eyes, we shouldn't be feeding our ears. You know there's music that takes us away and transports us to another time, another place where we shouldn't go? How many have, how many have experienced that? I have. And so that's for us, right? The six or seven of us that, rose, that raised our hands, that's for us. <laughs> Let's control what we consume. See, because self-control is a gateway sin. See, Pastor Bricker taught us that ungodliness is the cause of all sins, the root of them. Pastor David told us pride is the sin, right, that props us, that props up all the others. But the lack of self-control is most definitely a gateway sin. It leads us to some of the quote-unquote greater sins that bring much more severe and dire circumstance, consequence, excuse me. So much so that Proverbs 25, 28 says that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Think on that for a second. I'll repeat it. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Does what we consume glorify God? What we participate in physically, activity, rest, our agendas, some of us are out of control in regards to our agendas. And I look in the mirror again. We allow anxiety and stress to seep in. We, it becomes a burden on our family. It becomes a burden on our marriages. It becomes a burden on our health. Because we're so overwrought with things to do. You know what? The kids will be okay if they miss a game. The kids will be okay if... You don't sign them into five sports this school year. They'll, they'll be all right with four. Does our usage of that time bring God glory? Does all the things we have planned, we want to make sure that, that their portfolio looks great for when they go to college. I did 35,000 sports in my time in school, and so I'm a shoe in for whatever the school is that you want your son to be in. Does that glorify God? Is there devotional time been, uh, built into that? Is there personal time with Jesus? Does it allow for service opportunities? These are tough questions. A lot of us are comfortable with two service opportunities a year. We check them off and we're good. We did our service. I'm not going to go into that. But Paul had a couple of things to say about that. We were designed, made for... I said I wasn't going to go into that, so I'm going to keep going. <laughs> but who? Who do we do things with? Well, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah? Some interactions don't, with people don't glorify God. We like it because they're funny, because they joke a lot. 
or because they tell us what's happening in the neighborhood, right? <laughs> but some interactions just don't glorify God. We get with people sometimes to have a good time or to, to fellowship. Other times, right, it's, it's to gossip or to flirt or to do something else. Now, I'm going to ask you to forgive me. I, I, I come from New York City. I am very direct and very blunt. And so, but I, I think we need to treat, treat these things that way. There are things that do not benefit me. Though I like the company, though I like the friendship, though I like to laugh, but what happens in those communications, what happens in those uh, uh, meetings, what happens in those gatherings does not glorify God and does not edify me. Self-control, does God glorify him? him? Does God glorify it in those places? But I'll leave it there. We can lose control financially. Here's some debt statistics in the United States. As of the end of last year, the average, the, the, the total American household owns $16.9 trillion in debt. That means the average adult owes $65,000, carries $65,000 in debt. Credit card debt is $986 billion, up $130 billion from 2021. The average car payment. It's $725 a month. Average car payment, $725 a month. I will be walking. <laughs> and then I take care of the first self-control issue. <laughs> it's really easy to bite off more than we can chew. Just because the amount that I spend equals one penny less the amount that I earn doesn't mean I can afford it. A lot of us here don't have that issue. A lot of us here do. Or else we wouldn't have $986 billion in credit card debt. We want to know more about a person. Look at what they spend their money on. Open up your bank account, your, your debit card, and just go, go down the list and see. As an exercise for the last week, last month, God is calling us to have self-control in our finances. I want to buy a house, but I like to spend money on expensive di dinners and unnecessary purchases. I want to save for activity X, but I like to spend $150 at Starbucks every month. I want to buy a brand new luxury car, but have no budget for contingencies or no budget for retirement. Are we glorifying God through our finances? Are we giving back to his cause? Are we giving from what he has so graciously and open-handedly given us? Are we then taking that and bringing that back and sowing that back into his mission and his cause? Are we glorifying God in our finance? Let's talk about mental control, mental self-control. We look the lack of control of our thoughts. The mind is a battlefield. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. But Mark 7:15 says, "There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, we don't always have control about what pops into our head. But we do have some control about how long it stays there. Now, we do have some control about where we take that thought. Amen? Do we just get it out? Do we find something and occupy that space so that that thought leaves us? Or do we let it marinate? And let us, at least in our mind, savor what our body cannot. Privately enjoy in the quietness and secrecy and privacy of our gray matter what we cannot do in the exterior or witnessed by anyone else. Are we glorifying God in our thoughts? Passage in the Word that tells us there's anything positive we could think about, and there's a list. And the list ends with, think on these things. It's calling us to think on those things. Now, let's move on from the mind and talk about emotion, emotional chaos. <laughs> emotional chaos. So I want to start by showing a little video. Um, if we can get that video going. No, the Irish cream sounds good, huh? What's that? Uh, it's cream and it's, uh, it's Irish. Hurry up and order! Excuse me. Thank you. Um, how about a smoothie? What's in that? Smoothie's a juice drink. We want coffee. Buddy, relax. No, you relax. I'm a regular here. This line needs to move. I beg your pardon. Do you have scones? Tall, non-fat, double latte. Sir, you're at the back of the line. I recognize that. Cut it out or you're out of here. You can't kick me out. You know what? You're, you're really invading my ear space. Look, I'm a frequent coffee drinker. I'm part of the club. I have a card. Do you have a card? Do you have a card? No, I don't have Does a card. anyone here have a card? We don't have frequent drinker cards. That's a video club card. Ah! Zip it there, Sporty Spice! Are we doing this? Oh. Is this happening now? Yeah. Wanna Sir, go? I'd Let's love do to. it. Oh, you're hurting me! You're hurting me! That happens to be the video of me at Publix the second time I went to the deli here in New York when I moved from New York. I'm standing in line, and the guy has been working at the deli for 15 years. The line is about five, and I got there late on purpose, because, you know, late is light, right, in Publix. And I get there late, there's a line of five people, and the guy is cutting, and every slice he cuts, he's asking about the kids. And another slice, and college, and another slice, the wife. I'm sitting there, and I'm eating myself from within. <laughs> if you've ever been to a New York City deli, it's like this. Gone next, right? And it, said, I, it took me 18 minutes, I timed it, 18 minutes <laughs> to get to the counter. And the guy was from New York. He goes, hey, where are you from? I said, I'm hungry. I, I'd like whatever I ordered. I don't remember what I ordered. And then, he, we got into conversation. He got me. 
You know why? Because I can't give up a good conversation either. And I told him, I says, you know, you get on this line. I said, you're from New York. You should know better. I told him. And he says, you're not in Kansas anymore, baby. I was aggravated to no end. And so, next slide. Um, we're going to talk about anger at his friends. And I don't have much time, but give me a... Everybody give me, if you give me, each of you give me about a minute or two, then I got about two hours. Um, so when we talk about his friends, we're going to talk about anger, right? We talk about impatience, we talk about irritability, and impatience being a strong sense of annoyance at what we perceive as the unintentional or incidental faults or delays of another. And irritability is simply the frequency of how impatient we get, right? And uh, we all understand that, we all know what that is. Um, I'll move on to the definition of temper. Right, temper is a person's state of mind, the quality of one's composure. And that when it is uncontrolled, it is the on-ramp to anger. And anger is the strong feeling of displeasure or antagonism, accompanied all, usually with sinful thoughts, emotions, words, and actions towards the object of our anger. So what are the problems with anger? Well, number one, it's usually directed to the people closest to us, whether they are the primary object of that anger or not. That's the first problem. We take it out on our people. Right? We take it out. I've been married now. We're going on 14 years. And uh, we've had a pretty decent go at this. I don't always get angry at her for no reason. Sometimes I do. And anger, the second thing is anger is almost always sinful. Almost always. Let's not kid ourselves. Let, let us not kid ourselves. Oh, oh, well, what about Ephesians 4.26? Be angry and do not sin. Let's look at that for a second. Right? And then he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. What's the point of that passage? Is if you're going to be angry, move on from it quickly. That doesn't... That phrase, it is, a, it is a saying, it is a figure of speech. It's not saying, you know what, you can go the whole day upset with your wife and you make sure you make up right before you, you go to bed. That is not what that's saying. You get angry, get over it. That's what that's saying. Well, what about righteous anger, Brother Omar? Ha! It arises, let's talk about righteous anger. Righteous anger arises from an accurate perception of true evil and sin. But here's the kicker. Righteous anger is always, always, always controlled. Righteous anger will always bring us, always bring us to act according to God's will. It'll bring us to pray for the, for the object of that anger. It'll bring us to a response of righteous justice and care for those affected from that object of anger. And third, it will bring out biblical call-outs and biblical correction, as in Matthew 18, not as the call-outs and correction on your Facebook page. Another thing that I have to remind myself of. Our job is not to, because it's sinful, call it out and then condemn. If you see something that is not what it should be, what is our responsibility to that? Anybody? 
What's my responsibility? If, if you find me in error, brother or sister, what is your job? Confront me first. Come to me humbly, honestly, and straight, and be like lovingly, hey, this, I saw you do this. This isn't right. Let me pray for you. And then so on and so forth. It's not to go on social media and blast what you heard because it's sinful and it's wrong. That is not righteous judgment, that is sin. It will never bring us to a thought, desire, or deed that is sinful against one another. I heard the voice of God and that's why I killed five people. How many times do we hear that in the news? No, that's not righteous anger. Most fits of anger, even when in response to unjust treatment, do not take into account that God is present. And 1 Peter 2.19 says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, when mindful of God, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Are we mindful of God in our anger? For most of us, what is the answer? I'll answer for the rest of you, no. At least not in my case. Another thing about most instances of expressions of anger are not checked immediately and cross the threshold of sinful thought against another bearer of the image of God. And yet, no one ever causes you to be angry. You make me mad. No. It's not an accurate response. Dealing with our anger requires recognizing the real reason why we become angry. It's not you made me mad. It's I became angry because my pride was hurt. Or I became angry because I couldn't control the situation. I couldn't control the narrative. I couldn't control my reputation based on what they were saying. My selfish expectations were not met. That's why I became angry. You did not make me mad. I became angry because of something else. You were the object, maybe. You were what spurred that on. But I became angry because of my own sin. My own sin. Dealing with, answer, dealing with anger also points us to the godly exercise of self-control. We'll speak more about this in, in two minutes. I'm going to skip anger's offering, offspring because I don't have time, but their resentment, bitterness, enmity, hostility, and holding grudges. Basically, they all point to some level of spiritual maturity, but we can discuss those another time. So, how do we address this? How do we address this issue of lack of self-control? Well, number one, we do not suppress it. We address it through self-control first. True self-control is a gift from above, produced in and through us by the Holy Spirit. It's important to recognize that it is received from outside ourselves. Secondly, self-control is not a gift we receive passively, but actively. We are not the source. We are intimately involved. Dr. Ed Welch, a counselor, Christian counselor said as the Hebrews were promised the land but had to take it by force one town at a time so we are promised the gift of the gift of self-control yet we must also take it by force 
This is an area where the term let go and let God does not apply. We use that very often. We use that too often. We use that to excuse our inaction and to justify, oh, well, God's working in me. What am I doing in response to what God is doing? God has finished it. He has won the victory. Have I gotten up and taken control of that which God has allowed me and given me the power to take control of? We're not talking about salvation here. We are saved by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed by that blood, justified, made, declared innocent. We have become the righteousness of God and made holy in Christ. Yet, there are things that we need to do in response to that. Let's go back to where we started, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 7, and we'll finish there. Some phrases there to highlight. In verse 3, it speaks about his power has granted us godliness. Also in verse 3, it says we receive his power through his word. Through the knowledge of him, in other words. Verse 4 says we can partake of his divine nature. What? That is the beautiful thing of imputation. He has imputed on us. He has, he, has, he has given, he has wrapped us in. He has taken our guilt and taken our sin and given us his righteousness and the ability to respond as he would by grace. You and I have that. We are not God. We are not little gods. But we have the power of God and we live with the Holy Spirit in us that empowers us to do this. <coughs> we can partake of his divine nature. Verse 4, it's in there. He has promised us this access. Verse 4. There's a promise. And in verse 5 we say, we see that we must make the effort. And so verses 5 to 7 bring us the formula. Here's the formula. Right, the verse, the verse says, for virtue we build upon virtue of knowledge, and upon that self-control, and upon that steadfastness, and that leads us to godliness. What does that mean? But what, is, what, is, what does Paul mean? What does Peter mean here? Well, he means virtue, the capacity, the habitual capacity of a person to respond freely and consciously to situations in a manner that reflects and intensifies his conformity to Jesus Christ. Virtue, I want to look like Christ. I want to walk like Christ. I want to be like Jesus. That's the virtue. I want to live like Jesus lived. I want to walk like Jesus walked. That's the virtue. And how do I build upon that? Through knowledge, through his word, through getting to know Christ himself. I can't be like someone I have no ideas about. And once I get to know him in his word, I build upon that and I start taking steps to self-control. And as I take those steps, right, I, I, one day at a time, and one day at a time, and I continue that and practice that, and then I, as I practice steadfastness. And as I do it, not just once here and once there, but now once today and tomorrow and the next and the next day, it becomes habit. It becomes growth. That fruit of the Spirit has matured in me. And then I get one step closer to what Pastor Mark talked about, godliness. Because every day that I take control of the sin that besieges me, every day I take note of that God is here. Every day I take note that God is present. Every day I take note that God is with me. And once I get to that, whew, 
We're almost there. But we'll never make it in our human life where we get closer and closer as the sun rises to its highest point in the, at noontime. We sow into it. Galatians 6 tells us, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And lastly, we want Jesus to get the glory. I'm going to close here. How do we give Jesus glory in these moments? Well, one, we learn to say no. But two, we just don't learn to say no. We admit that inadequacy and emptiness of doing it on our own. We pray for Jesus' help. And we pray correctly. Part of the issue is we don't know how to pray. I was reading Psalms 27.3, and I noticed that David made a petition of God. He said, one thing I have asked for that I seek after. I never considered the importance of seeking after that which I pray for. Now, this is not a claim it in, a claim it in, or, or name it and claim it or blab it and grab it prosperity thing. This is a prayer and faith thing. I can't pray for one thing and do the opposite. Can't, Lord, I want to be a Bible teacher but never open my word. Lord, I want to buy a house but never save money. Right? I, I can't do that. The Bible talks about it. It says, if when my faith goes that way, when my prayer goes this way and my life goes this way, right there, that's the address of double-mindedness. And a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And what should he expect to receive from the Lord? Nothing. We have to trust God's promises because he will provide and he will bless our efforts to self-control. <laughs>